For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've been studying the book of Romans, this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, laying out his entire theology from A to Z. Um, And as we come to Romans 6, we start thinking about spiritual growth. And you know, um, we've got a uh, holiday coming up here in a couple of weeks, Cinco de Mayo, (laughs) which is Spanish for Independence Day. Which got me thinking about our own Independence Day, which always gets me thinking about Ben Franklin. (laughs) Which always gets me thinking about Ben Franklin's autobiography, which I had to read in high school English class. You guys are probably the same way, aren't you? (laughs) Whatever you think of Cinco de Mayo. There's this really interesting passage in this book, though, where old Ben, who is not a Christian, he's a deist, um, he goes on this program of moral reform. And here's what he says. He says, it was about this time in my life where I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. I would, either con- I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason, so often the case when it comes to spiritual growth. For this purpose, I therefore contrived the following method. He made a list of 13 virtues. It was actually 12, and he said, a friend of mine said, maybe you should add pride to your list as well. And so he did. And he said, what I'm gonna do is each week, I will give one week's strict attention to each of the virtues successively. And then he made a chart, which he copies into his biography, and the first week was temperance, which he defined as eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. He had a little grid where he had one box for each day of the week, and he'd mark himself how many times he messed up that day in that particular virtue. His list is pretty interesting, actually. One is silence, that's his second one. There's the virtue of sincerity. Cleanliness, to tolerate no uncleanliness in body, clothes, or habitation. Number 12 is interesting, chastity. He says, I will rarely use venery, which is sex, venereal, you know, anyway. <laughs> Except for health or offspring, never to dullness or weakness, and, uh, or to the injury of your own or another's peace or reputation. It's funny, though, because ma- he had so many illegitimate children, his marriage was a disaster. They lived estranged for, like, the last 40 years of his life. Anyway, he says, thus, in the first week, my great guard was to avoid every, the least offense against temperance, leaving the other virtues to their ordinary chance, only marking the, every evening the faults of the day. Thus, if in the first week I could keep my first line marked T clear of spots... 
I suppose that the habit of that virtue would be so much strengthened and its opposite weakened that I might venture extending my attention to include the next. And for the following week, keep both lines clear of spots. So he's, he's adding to his virtues. Proceeding thus to the last, I could go through a course complete in 13 weeks, four courses a year, and like him who having a garden to weed does not attempt to eradicate all the bad herbs at once, which would exceed his reach and his strength, but works on one of the beds at a time and having accomplished the first proceeds to a second. So he says, my life, it's like a garden that's completely out of control and I'm gonna weed the one and then the next week I'll kind of weed the second one and hopefully the first one will stay good and I'm just gonna keep, I'm gonna achieve perfection. It's like weeding. You know, it's almost like he's training for a marathon or something like that. This is a very modernistic approach. But he says, I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults than I had imagined. Sometimes you don't notice this till you really start trying. And his conclusion was, I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but I fell far short of it. Yet, I was by the endeavor a better and happier man. That's his conclusion. Perfection seemed so easy until he tried, and then he realized it wasn't. Few observations here. He's trying to make himself morally stronger and stronger, and that is the key, we think, to, to gaining moral virtue. I need to get stronger. It's very selective. I don't know why he picked those 13 or how he defined them the way that he did. But God's bar would be a lot higher than Ben's list of 13. Also, at the end of the day, you're supposed to remember where you messed up. Um, It would be pretty easy to forget or to have some blind spots. He's seeking change from the outside in. As he tries to do the right thing, he notices there's a problem, a lot bigger problem than he realized, but he thought, if I can just work from the outside in, then I can reform myself. There's also the fact that it didn't work, (laughs) as he admits there in the end. And so, you know, when we approach spiritual growth, this is often the approach that we take. We try to make ourselves stronger. We tend to be selective. We tend to go outside in because that's the only option that we have, and it doesn't work. And what we're looking at here in the book of Romans is God's approach for spiritual growth, the approach that he wants us to take. And we studied last time in Romans chapter 5 This is where he starts to get into the issue. He's talked about how to be made, he's talked about how everybody's guilty, chapters one through three. He's talked about how we're made right before God and receive forgiveness, chapters three through five. But now he talks about spiritual growth. And what he said in Romans five is your problem is deeper than what you do. No, you do what you do because you are who you are. There's something wrong with you at the very core that God has to go to work on. And the solution needs to come from the inside out. Just like our problem is at the core, the solution is at the core as well. And the key to spiritual growth is we need to be made new by God and then we need to live out that power of that new identity, changing from the inside out. And so many of us approach spiritual growth like Ben Franklin where I'm just gonna try to do the right thing and exert my will in some sort of methodical way. And God says, no, my way is totally counterintuitive and it's spiritual growth under grace. We saw in Romans 5 that we're born into this world in Adam, that our first ancestor was, he was created perfect in a perfect world, and yet our first ancestors rebelled against God and it broke the entire world and the human race that descended from them. They gave rise to generation after generation of human beings fallen in a fallen world. And here you are down here in the present generation. You're in Adam, you're guilty. You are dying. 
We're all headed toward the grave and we're all what the Bible calls sinners, which means we don't wanna do the right thing. It's what Ben Franklin was talking about. He was surprised how resistant he was to doing the right thing. But what scripture says is that unfortunately, whereas other approaches merely try to cover up this guy's problem, scripture says something totally different, that God offers a new way, that we can transfer from being in Adam to in Christ like this. Look at that, whoa. (laughs) You never thought PowerPoint animation was capable of so much. Wait till tonight is over, you're not gonna believe it. We can be transferred from in Adam to in Christ, a new identity, whereas in Christ, you are innocent, not guilty anymore. You have eternal life instead of headed for eternal death, eternal separation from God. And you have power for true change. Instead of something inside of you that works against change, we now have the power for real transformation. And this is such good news. I wish I had learned the stuff we're gonna learn tonight when I was a young Christian. I didn't stumble across this till many years later. The key to spiritual growth is not really trying hard, but it's living out our new identity in Christ. It starts with being placed in Christ, and that's what happens when you become a Christian. And then you need to learn who you are now and how to harness the power of your new identity. So we're gonna pick up in Romans chapter six, verse one. Paul says, what shall we say then? He's been talking about grace. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And so he knows what his opponents are gonna say. They're like, oh, Paul, yeah, grace sounds awesome. Maybe we should sin even more so we get even more grace. And Paul knows this objection and he answers this objection. And this question, why not just continue in sin because of grace? What does he say? Does he say, no, you can't do that because it's impossible to sin once you're a Christian? Some Christian teachers teach true Christians won't really sin. That's not true at all. Why would Paul be having this discussion with these Christians if sin were were impossible? And why would he say that here? Is it because God will reject you if you keep on sinning? No, he doesn't say that either. He says, in fact, just the opposite in the strongest terms. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does he say? He says, Why not continue in sin? Because it's totally inconsistent with who you are, with your new identity. You have changed and therefore those old clothes don't fit anymore. And this question of identity is an important one we need to think about here. What is identity? You know, we've heard of identity theft. This is where someone can so, they know certain numbers, your social security number or your fingerprints or whatever, your retina pattern. and they somehow are able to steal your identity and rack up a bunch of debt. Or we hear of an identity crisis where something changes in your life and I don't even know who I am anymore and I'm redefining who I am. You ever been uh, subjected to cheesy icebreakers? (laughs) Where you're like in a class or in a small group and they're like, okay, we're gonna go around the room and we're gonna say our name, and we're gonna say something about ourselves. And I'm like, I never know what to say about myself. Where I'm from, I'm a Buckeye. Is that my identity? Uh, Who am I? And so, our identity, who are you? Do you ever wonder about that? Who are you? What do you say in response to that question? If you're honest, a lot of our answers to this 
we're defining ourselves based on how we compare to who we see around us. Imagine this scene here. You, you awake to find yourself floating around in a bubble in space. All you see is a star field in every direction. You have no memory. You don't know where you came from. You're just sitting there wondering, who am I? Who am I? You're looking around, trying to find something to attach your identity to. And all of a sudden, I float along. <laughs> And you're like, whoa, I must be short. (laughs) I can't believe how short I am. But then, some others float up, and they're even shorter than you are. And you're like, man, I guess we're the tall ones around here. (laughs) And then you take a closer look at their feet, and you realize, oh, (laughs) they're all wearing Crocs. I don't have Crocs. Crocs must be super cool and fashionable. Man, I feel so bad that I don't own a pair of these Crocs. I wish I was part of this cool bubble gang. I'm like the only one in the universe that doesn't have the latest fashion. It's very confusing. The more points of comparison you have, the more confusing it becomes. What if we add 100 other people to this picture? What if we add 7 billion other people to this picture? And we start, it gets confusing. Who do I compare myself to? Who am I? A lot of us have faced a real identity crisis. Maybe you're facing it right now. Who am I? What What do I mean? What is this? Well, what you do flows from who you are and really from who you think you are. What we really need is we need some sort of a reference point that's not just another bubble floating around in this space, but something that's outside of this space, an infinite external reference point to define ourselves by. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter six. God is giving you an eternal, infinite reference point, Jesus Christ, who tells you who you are, who tells you the way this world is, who defines right and wrong, and who will protect you in a very chaotic and, and, insecure world. You gotta know who you are if you're gonna live your life, if you're gonna have moral change. If you think you're a failure, you're gonna act like one. I remember back in college, I had this roommate who, this guy was very smart, but he wasn't like really like book smart necessarily, but super smart, knew everything about everything, could fix anything, you know what I mean? His biceps were bigger than most people's thighs. And he really wanted to be a nurse. And year after year, he would apply to nursing school, and every time he would get rejected because his grades just weren't good enough. He applied to every nursing school around town. Finally, after four years of this, he applies and he gets in. And he's so excited for that first day of school. You know, he's there, he's got his his book bag, he's got his trapper keeper, he's got his new haircut, and he is ready to go. Well, a month goes by, and he sits and he sits down with me, and I could tell something was wrong, and he said, I'm gonna have to drop out of nursing school. And I was like, what, How, so soon? What happened? And he goes, I haven't told anybody this, but every day I drive to that school, and I sit in the parking lot, and I have a panic attack, because I'm so terrified of failing, and so convinced that I'm gonna fail, I can't even get out of the car. Well, it turns out he was plenty smart to get through nursing school and uh, made it through and is doing just fine now. But, you know, this was a case where, at the time, his identity 
was affecting his ability to even function. Not because he couldn't do it, but because he thought he couldn't do it. His view of himself. And this is not just, you know, spiritual growth, this is not just behavior management. That's not the key here. You know, you think about some people whose dogs are like really barky dogs, um, and they're getting super annoyed by the constant barking. They might get their dogs a bark collar where it's got a little sensor, and when the dog barks, it senses the noise, and it'll send like this high-pitched beep that's really annoying to dogs. And you know, you could train a dog not to bark that way, and I wish more dog owners would, frankly. <laughs> In fact, I would buy a bark collar for anyone living 100 yards from my house. But um, this is such a superficial, external training. We're not just dogs that need to be trained out of bad behaviors. We're human beings made in the image of God, and we're very deep and complex beings. And so, you know, while, you know, we can control the symptoms of our problem for a time, the solution goes right to the very core of our identity. And growing starts with knowing, is what Paul says. Growing starts with knowing who you are in Christ. And that's what he says here in chapter 6, verse 3. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He says, you need to know. That's the first action verb here. And when he says we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, some of us, this conjures up images of water baptism. The word baptized just means to put into, to immerse. There's a lot of different things you can get baptized into in the New Testament. You gotta look at the context to determine that. Well, here it says you've been baptized into Christ Jesus. And so what scripture says is there's this thing that happens when you become a Christian where the moment you put your faith in Christ, you're forgiven for all your sins, you're adopted as his child, and, and it says you are put into Christ, baptized into Christ. And so it's something like this. Now, ready? you ready for this? Look at this, baptism into Christ. Wow. There you go. There's some sort of a joining, there's some sort of a permanent merger, a union between you and Christ. Theologians call this the mystical union, where you are connected to Christ for all of eternity, and now what is true of you is true of him. Baptism works this way. You know, this clicker here. If I put this fancy new clicker, if I baptize this into my pocket, then where I go, the clicker goes. If I walk over to this side of the stage, the clicker just made its way over here. If I walk over to this side of the stage, well, now the clicker also is over here. If I'm kidnapped and taken to Indiana after the teaching and the clicker's still in my pocket, the clicker also, because it's baptized in my pocket, would travel with me on this adventure. <laughs> and Scripture says, that's the way it is with you in Christ now. You've been baptized into him, so what's, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the old you. He sees the new you. And look at the, the progression here. He says, therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Let me just highlight the progression here. Baptized into Christ, which means you're baptized into his death. When Jesus hung on the cross and died, 2,000 years ago almost, he died for sins. But he died the death that we deserved in this some very real sense where God identifies us with Christ, where we're identified with his death. 
And no longer do we have to die for our own sins, but because we're identified with Christ, we're somehow included in his death. Not only were we included in his death, but we're also included in his resurrection. Sometimes Christians forget about that part. We talk a lot about the death. We also need to talk about the resurrection. We're raised so that we too might walk in newness of life. Raised so we too might walk in newness of life. This right here, being included in Christ's death is how we move from in Adam to in Christ. The wages of sin is death, Romans says. From the very beginning, God said sin brings death. But because we've been baptized into Christ, God doesn't have to kill us to get us out of Adam. He offered up Christ. Christ offered himself up on the cross in our place. And so now we can move from in Adam to in Christ. We can pass out of that death sentence. Watchman Nee says, how can you know that this happened to you? How can you know that you died with Christ positionally? You know for the one sufficient reason that God has said so. It doesn't depend on your feelings. If you feel that Christ has died, he's died. But if you don't feel that he's died, he's still died. (laughs) Sorry to say, your feelings don't change that fact. If you feel that you've died, you've died. And if you don't feel that you've died, you've nevertheless just as surely died. These are divine facts. And so many of us, when it comes to spiritual growth, the biggest problem you're having is you are so focused on your feelings. And no matter what you feel, that's what's true right now. And God says, no, 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 you died with Christ. And these are divine facts. And whether you feel it or not, it's true. You need to know that it's true, and then your feelings will follow the truth. This is really, if you walk away with anything here tonight, walk away with this. What Nia is saying here, what Paul is saying here, you need to know that you died with Christ, and you've been raised so you can walk in newness of life. That is the truest thing about you, and our job needs to be to believe in the truth. This is how you become a new creation, Scripture says. The old has gone, the new has come. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Over and over again, this is repeated in the New Testament. This newness of life is the key to spiritual growth. This newness of life is the key to spiritual growth. This is the key to everything. God wants to give you resurrection power. That, that is how spiritual growth works. Not by making the old self better, but by taking him out of the way. Again, Watchman Nee. He says, if we are preoccupied with the power of sin and our inability to meet it, then we naturally conclude that to gain victory over sin, we must have more power. If only I were stronger, I could overcome my violent outbursts of temper. Ever feel that way? And so we plead with the Lord, strengthen me, Lord, so I can exercise more self-control. But this is altogether a fallacy. This is not Christianity. God's means of delivering us from sin is not by making us stronger and stronger, but by making us weaker and weaker because his strength is perfected in weakness. That's a surely rather peculiar way of victory, you say, but it is the divine way. God sets us free from the dominion of sin, not by strengthening our old man, but by crucifying him. Not by helping him to do anything, but by removing him from the scene of action. For years, maybe, you've tried fruitlessly to exercise control over yourself. 
and perhaps this is still your experience, but when once you see the truth, you will recognize that you're indeed powerless to do anything, but that in setting you aside altogether, God's done it all. Such a discovery brings human striving and self-effort to an end. And it's not passive and it's not willless, and we'll talk about how this works in the weeks to come, but the self-effort approach of religion is not God's way. There's a better way, a new way through the cross of Christ. And that's why Paul said back in chapter one, salvation is accomplished by faith alone from start to finish by faith. And this is trusting in God and living out what he has done for me. That's the key to spiritual growth. So he says we need to know because if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Yes, scripture does teach that one day Christians will be resurrected and live forever in heaven. And our bodies will be resurrected too. But often in spiritual growth context, resurrection is used for that power that we get. Like Paul says in Philippians 3, I wanna know him and the power of his resurrection so I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's talking about spiritual growth there and here. Knowing this, there's that knowing again, not feeling this, that our old self was crucified, knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we'd no longer be slaves to sin. Couple of points here. He talks about our old self was crucified so our body of sin might be done away with. I gotta define a few terms. The old self is who you used to be in Adam. That's your old identity. That's, that's who you were. And that's been crucified. The body of sin though, you're gonna see Paul refer to this as our flesh, as our sin nature. He's gonna talk a lot about this in chapter seven. This is the part of you that even as a Christian, the part of you left that rebels against God. There's still a part of us that's almost allergic to spiritual things and kind of hates it. And um, the problem is, this part's not done away with. Romans 6.6 6 in the NASB makes it sound like God is getting rid of this altogether. But it doesn't take, you know, a theologian to know that, yes, I'm a Christian now, but I still have urges to sin. And I can be like, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. But no. It's still there. And that can be very confusing. And I think the NLT actually has it right here. When it says the body of sin might be done away with, the Greek word, I think a much better translation would be might lose its power, might be rendered ineffective. It's not that he gets rid of it, but he wants your sin nature to lose, lose its power in your life so that that part gets weaker and weaker. And then the part, you know, God's control in your life, the Holy Spirit, that he and his, his influence will grow stronger and stronger. There's a part of you that will try to go back to living like you used to live. Imagine a driver of a car, you know. Imagine your sin nature like the driver of the car your whole life and he's a horrible driver, he's an evil driver. He's, you know, running over, you know, old ladies. He's crashing into convenience stores. He's speeding, a lot of bad things. <laughs> and then you become a Christian, you're like, get out of the driver's seat. So he's sitting over there in the passenger seat, but periodically he'll just reach over and try to grab the steering wheel. <laughs> and if you don't know that he's not allowed to do that, you'd let him do it. Or you think about a ship captain, you know, that you're at sea and the captain is just horrible and the whole crew knows and they decide we're done with this guy. And there's a mutiny and you're like, you're done being captain. You can ride on the ship back to port, but you are no longer in charge here. 
Well, that captain might still walk around barking orders at people. And some of the hands might follow him because that's what they're used to. But he's no longer in control of that ship. Or you think about, in our own history, the Emancipation Proclamation. 1863, January 1st, where Abraham Lincoln declared every slave is now free. Well, what was the result of that proclamation? The war was still going on for a couple more years. I don't think any slaves were set free when that proclamation was made, and a lot of them probably didn't even know about it. But eventually, they found out, and eventually, many of them gained their freedom. Now, the Emancipation Proclamation, this was a legal declaration so that slavery might lose its power in, in reality in people's everyday lives. And, you know, what do we know about in Adam versus in Christ? They couldn't be any more different. Just to summarize before we move on to the next section, in Adam we're alienated from God, remember? Whereas in Christ we're alive to God. All of a sudden we can talk with him freely and he wants to. It's like the phone has been dead your whole life and now it's turned on and you can communicate. In Adam we don't know who we are. We have an unclear sense of identity. Whereas in Christ we know exactly who we are because God defines my identity. In Adam, we're guilty and we're doomed to death, whereas in Christ, we're totally forgiven and we're headed for eternal life with him. Our future couldn't be any brighter. And in Adam, we're alone and with unmet needs. And if you're in Adam tonight, you are so alone and that is never gonna end. And in fact, this is the least lonely you'll ever be. If you die in Adam, you spend eternity separated from God in hell all alone, and even the little fellowship you have with other people, and the little bit of good gifts you get from God, they're not there. In Christ, though, we're connected to Christ, we're connected to other Christians, we couldn't be any more relationally connected. And that's super cool here, it's gonna be even cooler in the next life, as we get to experience that without any of the effects of sin. And so as we look at this list here, And some of us find ourselves identifying with the column on the left. There's three possible reasons. One, maybe you're still in Adam. And God doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to move over to in Christ and that's not something you do. That's that's a gift he offers to you that you receive. You can receive his forgiveness. You can be transferred tonight into Adam. Some people though, They're in Christ, but they don't know all these benefits. That's the way I was for several years in my Christian life. I didn't know this stuff. There was this librarian out in California. Her name was Barbara Testa, and she inherited six steamer trunks that had belonged to her grandfather in 1961. She stuck them up in the attic. Over the next 30 years, she slowly worked her way through these trunks until finally she came across a document in the autumn of 1990 And the cover page said this, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Tom Tom Sawyer's Comrade by Mark Twain. First half, which had been lost. They had the second half sitting in a library in New York. They didn't know where the first half was. It was in her attic. Her grandfather was a book collector and he had found it and it had gotten mixed in with some other stuff. Valued at 1.5 million at the time, which was 25, 30 years ago. 1991, yeah, something like that. It's either 20 or, I don't know. Having math problems right now. Um, 30 years ago, yeah, almost. (laughs) 
Here she was living as a librarian, not a real lucrative career. She had $1.5 million documents sitting up in her attic. She was rich, but she didn't know it. She was, she was living like she was relatively poor. Although there are some people who are in Christ and they know these benefits, but they don't believe the benefits of being in Christ. And Paul says it's not enough to know. There's an act of the will. There's a choice to believe these benefits of being in Christ. And that's what he says in chapter six, verse 11. He says, even so, knowing these things, he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it's no, and then consider is the next action step here. Consider yourself to be alive to God in Christ Jesus now that you know that you're alive. This is an accounting term. It means, you know, you go to the bank and you, you, you give them, you know, 50 bucks and say, I want to deposit this in my account. Well, they, they have to reckon that to your account. They have to take your money and then increase your account value by 50 bucks. They've reckoned it. They've actually counted it as in the, the, the account. And it kind of raises this question, what if you were rich but believed you were poor? What if you were rich but believed you were poor? Richard Wright's book, Black Boy, he's a 20th century American author. He, he gives his memoirs of growing up as a poor African-American child in the early 20th century. And if you've read this book, one of the things that really sticks out is how hungry he was all the time, how hungry his family was all the time. Little boys eat a lot. And they just didn't have the, the money to supply the food for him because they were too poor. And so he lives his whole life just starving. And then there's a brief period of time in his life where they go to live with his middle class Aunt Maggie and Uncle Hoskins, who had enough money to put plenty of food on the table each night. And he talks about the amazement he had, how he, he just couldn't believe there was enough food to eat finally. He says, at mealtime, Aunt Maggie's table was so loaded with food, I could scarcely believe it was real. It took me some time to get used to the idea of there being enough to eat. I felt like if I ate enough, there wouldn't be anything left for another time. When I first sat down at Aunt Maggie's table, I could not even eat until I had asked, can I eat all I want? Eat as much as you like, Uncle Hoskins said. I didn't believe him. I ate till my stomach hurt, but even then I didn't want to get up from the table. Your eyes are bigger than your stomach, my mother said. Let him eat all he wants, Aunt Two, and get used to food, Uncle Hoskins said. Get used to food. When supper was over, I saw there were many biscuits piled high upon the bread platter, an astonishing and unbelievable sight to me. Though the biscuits were right before my eyes, and though there was more than enough flour in the kitchen, I was apprehensive, lest there be no bread for breakfast in the morning. I was afraid that somehow the biscuits might disappear during the night while I was sleeping. I didn't want to wake up in the morning as I had so often in the past feeling hungry and knowing that there was no food in the house. So I took biscuits and slipped them in my pocket, not to eat, but to keep as a bulwark or a, a defense against any possible attack of hunger. Even after I'd got used to seeing the table loaded with food at each meal, I still stole bread and put it in my pockets. In washing clothes, my mother found the gummy wads and she scolded me to break me out of the habit. Stop it! 
So I stopped hiding the bread in my pockets and I instead hid it all around the house, in corners, behind dressers. I did not break the habit of stealing and hoarding bread until my faith that food would be forthcoming at each meal had been somewhat established. Isn't that interesting? A couple observations about this change that worked into his life pretty slowly. First of all, he didn't need more information. It wasn't like, look kid, there's flour, there's biscuits, we have this much, here's our accounts. That wasn't what he needed. It wasn't like he didn't understand bread or flour. Scolding sure didn't work. Yelling at him to stop it, that wasn't what he needed to speed this process along at all. All it did was it just pressed the problem down underground and it came out in all these different ways. It took time for his new identity to sink in. It was difficult, it wasn't that he didn't know, but it was difficult for him to believe that this was really true. It seemed too good to be true. And I think that's a lot of our problem when it comes to spiritual growth. It seems too good to be true. And so we don't believe it. Considering, it's hard to believe what God says about us. It's hard to consider this to be true. The old way is so familiar, we do it without even thinking about it. We can't feel it to be true. I think some of us wanna sense it. It's like we can be like, I'm forgiven, I can smell it. Smells like forgiveness. <laughs> Results take time. When God changes you from the inside out, yeah, it's not like we're gonna do this one morning and then it's like suddenly this sin problem is gone from my life. No, you have no idea how deep that problem runs. And um, it's actually got its roots in a lot of different places and it's gonna be slow inside out transformation. That's how God works, because he wants it done right. He's not into external because that doesn't work anyway. Also, God has an enemy who will oppose this, who will try to convince you otherwise and has very clever and creative ways of doing that. Practically, though, it's gonna mean talking back to yourself. It's gonna mean saying, no, that's not true, even though I feel it. Do you ever talk back to your feelings? I hope you can learn to talk back to your feelings and to, to, to declare what's true in spite of those feelings. It's not gonna make the feeling go away necessarily. It might but you can at least choose to take your stand on truth. There's no room for cynicism or fatalism here. Some of us default way too quickly to there's no hope, I'll never change, it's been too long. That's a direct, uh, that is unbelief here. God can't work with unbelief. It's by, salvation is by faith from start to finish, we said in chapter one. This is where trust comes in. And it's not a, a blind faith, it's a faith based on good, reason, rational basis here but it's still gotta be trust. If you won't trust, then you're not gonna see the benefits of trusting God. Gratitude is such a key element here. We declare the truth to ourselves and we thank God for that truth. We praise God for that truth. We begin every day with this. Considering and telling God, I believe this is true, God, and reviewing who we are. And it also means moving on to the third step which he tells us in verse 13. He says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. Present those to God as well. And so this third step, he says, you know and you consider now you need to present. 
And I was very confused on this point for many years. I thought it was like, now go do the right thing based on what's true. I even taught it that way. And then I took a closer look. I noticed that NLT has it wrong on this, a New Living Translation. Present yourselves to God, it says, use your whole body as a tool to do what's right. That's not what it says. There's nothing about doing righteousness here. It says, no, it says, present yourself to God. Present the members of your body as instruments, as tools. The word can even mean weapon. (laughs) Weapons of righteousness. Say, God, use me as a tool of righteousness. But it's not go out and do righteousness. Paul could have put it that way. This verse would have been a lot shorter. Now do the right thing. But he doesn't say that. No, it's very careful, indirect language that's being steered very carefully where he says, present yourself to God as one alive from the dead and present the members of your body, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your ears, your eyes, present your mind, everything as instruments of righteousness. An instrument is something that's used by someone else to do something. Not, the instruments themselves don't do it. They present themselves, they make themselves available to be used. So he says, present yourself to God, not use your body as a tool to do what's right. It's a very legalist, we have a lot of legalistic Bible interpreters, translators, that will try to spin things in the most legalistic way possible. He says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And so it's not enough just to present yourself to God. And some of us are presenting ourselves to God, but in simply the wrong way. We present ourselves to God in Adam, some of us. And this is the prayer that we're praying on a regular basis. Something like this. We come before God, and we're like, I'm supposed to get time with God. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm gonna do it. And we, I'm supposed to pray during that time. And I say, God, it's me again. I'm the most screwed up person in this church. I manage, oh, I usually manage to mess things up if I end up doing anything at all. God, I should have been reading your word more. I set all these goals. I didn't do it. I didn't even pay attention to what I read. I couldn't even remember. I can't believe how long it's been since I prayed. I've been dreading this moment. Oh, I've been failing you in so many ways. I haven't been listening to you, God. I'm sorry. I feel so far from you. I'm so sorry. I'm so worthless. Oh, God. That is not what Paul's talking about here. That is not presenting yourself as one alive from the dead. That's presenting yourself as someone who's still dead. That is a prayer of unbelief. And God does not want us to come to him and spout unbelief, especially when Christ died for us so we didn't have to live this way anymore. Some of us, this is your prayer life and you wonder why you don't want to pray and you wonder why you're not doing very well spiritually. You're not living out Romans 6. You're still acting like you're dead and you're telling God lies. You need to know who you are, you need to believe it, and you need to come to him affirming those truths. We come to him more like this. Present ourselves to God in Christ as one alive from the dead. We say, it's me again, Lord. I'm your adopted child. I'll never understand the extent of how much you love me You've forgiven all the wrong I've ever done and you put me in community with other Christians. And you defeated sin and you gave me your spirit to empower me to serve you and 
I have infinite worth in your eyes. And you say I'm seated with Christ at your right hand in the, the place of highest honor? Even though I've done nothing to deserve it, and it's all through your grace. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God. God, I'm presenting myself. I want to be used by you today. And I'm excited to see how you're going to do that. I'm available, Lord. Use me. And the, the closeness that you experience with God, you start looking forward to your time with him. It's not going to be instantaneous. I'm a new person. My life's completely different. But you'll, notice, you'll start to notice a difference. You'll start to look forward to time with him. You'll start to find yourself becoming a more spiritual person. You'll start to find yourself saying and doing things where you're like, that wasn't me. I can't believe that that thing just came out of my mouth, like in a good way, okay? <laughs> You'll start to find God using you. You'll start to find your values changing. You'll start to find yourself growing closer, experiencing closeness with God, looking forward to times of prayer where it'll start to feel weird if you miss your prayer time and your time with God. Not because you're supposed to or because like somebody's gonna get on your case, but because you wanna do it. Presenting yourself to God as one alive from the dead. Why not try a week of this? How about try seven days of this right here, presenting yourself alive to God with some gratitude and then tell me what kind of difference that starts to make in your spiritual life. Well, there's more to say on this subject in chapter six, and we'll have to just put the rest of it off till next week. Let me just draw a few conclusions. One, if you're a Christian, God's changed you at the deepest level. The old has gone, the new has come. Your life ended, and a whole new book began. Christ says, you need to be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of God. It's a new beginning. You want a new beginning to your life? feel so bad, like you've messed things up so much, like you could never change. That's what keeps a lot of people from coming to God. God says, don't worry about it. Let's put it behind us. Let's just start fresh, right here, tonight. Let's start new. Experiencing real change requires knowing and believing your new identity. You're never just gonna willpower yourself into, into change. You're not gonna Ben Franklin your way to moral virtue. No, you need to know what God has done for you in Christ and you need to know what's true of you. You need to reckon that. You need to consider that to be true. And then you need to present yourself to God in the reality of your new identity as someone to be used by him. And that offer is open to anyone. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care how long it's been. God loves you. God wants you to be in relationship with him. The thing that stands between you and him, he wants to take that out of the way. He wants to transfer that onto Christ. He's offering it free of charge. This can be a new beginning for you tonight. Yeah, Lord, it's so good to be sitting under grace, teaching like this. Uh, what a relief, Lord, um, for you to take the burden of works off of us and instead point us to where our focus needs to be. I pray, Lord, that... Um, our church would be characterized by this, Lord, by this new identity and um, by uh, people living in the power that comes from that and that we would have all the benefits that come from that. I also want to pray for anybody here who's not a Christian. I pray that they would have dealings with you tonight, Lord, 
at the very least, they would call out to you and ask you to show them if you're there. But um, I pray for some of us that tonight would be the night where we come into a relationship with Christ and we begin to learn how to walk in the Spirit. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.